In this episode of Economics Matters, we look behind the curtain at the world of economic forecasting. My colleague Ted Mallett, the Conference Board of Canada's Director of Economic Forecasting, gives us his take on how he and his team approach the business of economic forecasting. If you think about it, it can't be fun being an economist. Your job involves examining a system of billions of different moving parts that capture trillions of decisions by consumers, producers, businesses, and governments. And your job is to make sense of it all. Well, despite this daunting job description, you'll hear Ted's true passion for his work and what it takes to go beyond plotting average directions of the economy into the more nuanced and more meaningful work of developing a robust and accurate economic forecast. I'm Michael Bassett, and you're listening to Economics Matters, a Conference Board of Canada podcast. My guest this episode is the Director of Economic Forecasting at the Conference Board of Canada, Ted Mallett. Ted, welcome to Economics Matters. Thank you. I'm looking forward to this conversation. Ted, when we talk about economic forecasting, we normally talk about the outcomes of the work. So the predictions, the outlooks for the economy over a certain time horizon, whether it's three years or 20 years. We've covered the outcomes of these models before on this podcast, and we'll do it again. But today I want to talk to you a little bit about that behind the scenes magic of forecasting and what really goes into the puzzle of creating a forecast. What do you think about when it comes to economic forecasting and why do you think it's so important either to you or to the country? Our models are quite detailed. We have thousands of variables that we look at and influence. The purpose of the model is really to make sure that all of our base assumptions are consistent. Everything is connected to everything else. It's a very complex economy. We look at some of the basic outside influences that take place. We start with things like what we call our input-output block. And that is really a relationship where industries buy from other industries. The pulp and paper sector buys from the machining industry. They buy raw materials from forestry. They purchase labor and they produce their product, which is then sold to a range of other industries, the periodicals industries, the packaging industry. Everything fits together in this kind of cube. We also take a look at the population trends. Population is one of these things that is relatively easy to forecast. Everybody ages one year per year. We've got that sense of how aging progresses through the economy. We include the U.S. forecast in there because that tends to drive a lot of our exports and import performance. The model itself is simply a series of mathematical relationships between key variables. We tweak it from time to time to make sure that the relationships are consistent and up to date. The purpose of the model is to make sure that our outlook for things like raw material prices for paper products or for business services or so on is consistent with many of the other relationship variables out there. We've been running a fairly complex series of forecasting models really for the past 40 years. The national model has a couple of thousand variables in it, a couple of thousand equations that try to piece together how the economy functions as best as possible. Our model has to ensure that we've got a good degree of care in making sure that we're connecting things properly, both mathematically and conceptually. There's a great deal of interest in not just looking at the top-line forecast. Pretty well anybody can come up with a top-line guess about what national GDP is going to do in the next couple of quarters just by 
running a straight line or a ruler against some of the data that's provided. You just need a couple of variables for that sort of thing. But, uh, you know, we don't want to do forecasts that way. We also develop provincial models that are individually a little simpler than the national model, but it all hangs together. We use the national model as the seed to the basics in our provincial output because uh, different provinces have different strengths and weaknesses. Last year, the Canadian economy was powered a great deal by how things were going in Alberta, Saskatchewan, on the prairies, the oil and gas sector, and so on. So we need to have that level of detail. We also go into an additional level of detail geographically at the metro level because there's a great deal of interest, particularly amongst local decision makers, to say that is this particular area lagging or is it leading the economy? Can we count on more people coming in? Can we count on incomes rising faster than average? Because how can cities plan for their futures? They've got to develop infrastructure plans that go decades into the future. And they need to know, you know, a sense of how economies will be performing into that. So we want to be able to do that. I think the whole idea of granularity is extremely important. The economics community wants to supply more detailed information as much as possible. And that's what we're doing. We provide very detailed information by sector, by commodity, really, and geographically. We build our forecasts from the ground up. We take a look at where the major projects are happening. Where the key announced investments, for example, maybe there's a major hydro project or major factories being developed. We capture those, we list them out, and that forms the seed to our investment outlook in each province or perhaps even major municipalities. Everything fits together. All of our three core elements fit together that way, and uh, we present them on a quarterly basis, generally in kind of a sequenced format. We feel that going into this level of detail is necessary. We're really one of the very few organizations that can do this kind of complex modeling or complex dissection of what's actually happening in the economy. We've been doing that for many years, and really that's what we consider our real advantage in that. The economy is a very complex place. It is made up of millions, if not billions, of individual decisions to purchase, to invest to sell a product. After this podcast, I'll be heading out to lunch. I'll be buying something that'll become somebody else's income. That is all going to get captured in Statistics Canada's net for gross domestic product or income levels or consumer expenditures. My decision plus your decisions and everybody else's in the economy are going to be added up. Maybe the mistaken belief when you're simply looking at the StatCan results, saying that, okay, well, this is how the economy works. These billion or trillion dollar numbers is a good representation of what's actually happening. And people can get caught up in the numbers themselves. Really, what we're trying to do is try to bring back the notion that these are individual decisions and touch points in economic decision making that people are making. And that the forecast isn't so much trying to get the broad-based numbers absolutely correct, but we're really trying to find out why and you know how are those individual decisions being affected? The best bit of advice I got really early on in my career was that the data are not the economy. The data are simply imperfect representations of the economy. And if you get too caught up in the numbers, then you're probably missing some of the deeper aspects of the behavioral changes that are happening, the psychology of what's going on. That's really what we're trying to do is bring our learnings from 
previous experiences, then bring them forward. We have to present them in a numerical sense, but we also want to add in some of the qualitative aspects to this and bring that forward. I can give you a good example of how we learn over time. 9-11 was a tremendously traumatic event for Americans in particular, but people around the world. It affected people's existential feelings about how they behave, what they buy, what they do. And I'm firmly of the belief that 9-11 was one of the root causes to the property bubble in the U.S. because it created a nesting instinct amongst people. They were perhaps afraid to travel. They felt that there was just a concern about mortality in general. What's important? You only live once. I think there was a, a massive nesting instinct that showed up in the U.S. People decided to invest in their own homes, comfort. That's what people do when there's a traumatic event. It was coupled with a lot of other elements in the U.S. policy. They had kind of a wild west of a mortgage industry. And also public policy was encouraging people to own their own home. Those three events kind of brought together and just went overboard. That sort of thing didn't happen as much in Canada. The Canadian bubble happened much later. But it got us to the sense that there is these kinds of behavioral shifts that happen as a result of these kinds of shocks. When you fast forward to the pandemic, that is also an existential kind of concern. It caused a shock. The nesting instincts came back. We saw people deciding to invest in their own homes. That coupled with the fact that the work from home trend was really put into overdrive, and it really started to push the Canadian housing market into territories that we had not seen before. That's really what we're trying to do in the forecast. Not just looking at the decimal points or the billions or the numbers themselves, but try to capture some of the behavioral shifts that might happen based on what we've learned from these kinds of elements in the past. Here's an example of what we're looking at when we're looking at the economy. For example, we're looking at various trends and comparing them with other trends. Over the past year or so, there's been a tremendous increase in the inventories, the inventory buildup in the economy. Inventories are the difference between what's produced and what's bought. If inventories are accumulating, it means that producers are producing more than actually what's being consumed in the economy at the moment. And that can be a sign of things going well to some point, but often you'll end up with excess inventories being built up. When interest rates started to rise, the middle of last year tremendously and really started to hit problematic proportion for many consumers in the third quarter. We had seen this inventory accumulation and said, okay, this isn't sustainable. There's probably going to be a correction in inventories that producers are going to start stopping production in order so that their inventory levels will sort of go back to normal levels. It didn't so much happen in the third quarter, but it actually increased even faster. Hold on. Now, this looks like we're going to be ending up with significant inventory correction coming up. And that's what we built into our fourth quarter estimates for 2022. And sure enough, that's exactly what happened. We nailed our fourth quarter forecast quite accurately because we kind of foresaw what was going to be happening on this kind of esoteric element to the economy. There's something called a nowcast, which many organizations produce. We're producing some ourselves. But they're using the most recent quick data to kind of figure out what's actually happening in the same quarter. The nowcasts are usually based on consumption-based information that StatCan produces, and they don't have a whole lot of sense on the production side. That comes a bit later. 
the nowcasts were being quite a bit more optimistic about what the forecast for the fourth quarter was. But our view on the production side, on the inventory side, was that we're deliberately coming up with a forecast that's more negative than what the nowcasts were saying. And that uh, ended up being absolutely true. So we're pretty happy that we actually captured that particular element uh, reasonably well. There have been times when somebody's right with the numbers, but you can be right for the wrong reason. If GDP grows by 1% per year, but you said it was going to be based on the consumer demand versus the industry investment or exports versus imports, if you get that mix wrong, then the forecast being right doesn't necessarily help the customer. What we're trying to do is make sure that the components to the forecast are as accurate as possible. They're moving in the direction that we think they should be moving. And if the broad themes are holding water and working well, then that's really what our aim is. It's not always possible to get these numbers absolutely right to the decimal place. But really what we're aiming for is to make sure that the components of how the economy is performing is working more or less the way that we expect. Ted, you talked about the model in this search that you and your team have in terms of getting the best data to help inform the model. The last three years, you talk about the pandemic, and we've seen this explosion in new data coming out in this time. And it's also blown up, I think, a lot of folks' expectations around where the economy moves heading and where we're going. I remember one of my concrete examples from that period was that we had to update and you and your team had to update all of our the vertical axes on our charts because we had never experienced a decline that steep. The charts were just dropping all the way off and we'd never seen anything like that. For you as a forecaster going through the last three years, what are the lessons that you've taken? And what do you think that that means for economic forecasting in the future? Well, I remember that time. And in fact, on Twitter, once I said, hey, today should be Y-axis appreciation day for just the kinds of shifts that everybody had to make to their graphic representation of what was actually happening. I think we're seeing a lot more interest in the insights that are coming from places outside of Statistics Canada. They're certainly giving us good, solid, consistent data over time. That, of course, forms the backbone to our forecasts. But there's some increasingly important data that comes out that uh, maybe we can't rely on all the time because it may not be consistently presented. We may not get it in time. We're investigating other kinds of sources, like telecoms can provide a great deal of insight on just movements of people. Maybe the new sources give us a better sense of what's happening right now. For example, Google searches may be a very useful way of determining whether there's a turning point in the economy. If you find that Google searches are uncovering things like employment insurance, people are searching that term much more commonly, then it suggests that maybe there's a jobs crisis starting to happen. Those are the sort of things that we're trying to capture and help flavor what's actually happening in the economy at the current moment. We feed those into the model assumptions and push them out into the future. New sources of information are always welcome, and we're combing the horizon for all kinds of interesting flavor to our forecast. The business cycle is rarely orderly. There's always some twist that takes place. So those are the sort of things we have to stay nimble for, understanding the potential implications. 
So I introduced you as our director of economic forecasting and calling yourself a forecaster must invite some interesting conversations at dinner parties. You must run into people that think economic forecasting is the same as a Ouija board or the same as a weather forecast. What is the biggest misconception about economic forecasting that you've encountered? And what does that mean for you and your team when people have this misconception? Yeah, I can think back to many dinner parties where the most common question would be, should I go with fixed rates or should I go with variable rates? And that was the common expectation that I would have the answer to all these key questions. Misconceptions are around, is it all based on one straight line of outcomes? Are things getting better or getting worse? In the real world, they're getting better for some people and they're getting worse for others. One of the key takeaways I try to express to people is that, especially when you're talking about recessions, which is topical for the moment, many people seem to think that recessions are an outside influence that then happen on top of people. And therefore, how should we react? Oh, we're now in a recession. How should I change my behavior? Recessions are, or maybe it's more accurate to say that economies are kind of like organisms. They, everything is circular. Everything depends on everything else. And that a recession or boom time is kind of like body temperature. When things slow down, the body cools off and that shows a recession. The cooling off isn't affecting the rest of the body. The body's causing that kind of cooling. The kinds of antidotes or cures really comes from affecting individuals and their spending plans as opposed to having a top-down solution to this. Economies are built from the bottom up, much like our models. What we want to do is at least inform policymakers on the kinds of things that would affect the internal working temperature of the economy, as opposed to talk to it as if it was some sort of outside influence. You talked about Canadians and how we can be somewhat complacent about the performance of our economy. We still hold on to the view that we were the best place to live for a while without necessarily understanding the significant challenges our country faces in improving the economic performance or competing for dollars and talent in the world. When you think about the economic trends that are facing us and the Canadian economy, what are the ones that concern you the most for Canada's overall economic performance? There's a great deal to be proud of and happy that we've developed our systems and economy in a certain way, but clearly there are challenges as well. Canada was blessed with uh, geography and resources. We were very heavy in resources. We lived beside a country that was very populous and inventive. Canadians benefited from that a great deal. In the last half of the last century, there are now many more sources of potential areas of innovation and production and demand. Is Canada necessarily in the right place to be able to take advantage of that? It can't really happen from top down. We still need that bottom-up drive for investing in growth. Really, it comes down to do individual investors feel it is worthwhile? Will they make money by putting their savings or borrowing money to develop this procedure, this plant, this particular service? Success in the future is going to really depend on individuals' decisions on these kind of things. Uh, not just the producers, the companies themselves, but people who want to live here. What are they spending on? Why are they spending it here and not somewhere else? 
immigration is one of those flows that is important. Maybe to some degree, we can see Canada is seen positively worldwide. We have very strong immigration interests. People from other countries have a very high regard for the Canadian way of life. We can lever that, but we can't just rely on the first impressions. We have to have good, solid public policy that actually encourages a development mentality and that people should be allowed to try out their ideas and uh, see how they work. Right now, I think there's a feeling out there that you need to ask permission from too many people before that takes place. And I think that saps the potential for investing in growth. One of our hopes is that the work that we do is able to demonstrate that the biggest kinds of uncertainties out there is the willingness of Canadians to invest in our own country. Ted, what parts of your role really excite you? Finding the deeper understanding, finding the angles that other people perhaps don't have the team depth to be able to look at, and to search out those other data sources that could give some insight into how things may happen into the future. The economy's a tremendously challenging space to try to understand because there are lots of currents and countercurrents that are happening. The more we can tease out these kinds of interesting relationships, the more that we can interest the clients and other observers in the economy on what's actually going on. Finding new angles may be the best thing to describe what drives me and what interests me in doing this kind of work. Let's draw on that a little bit more. Where do you think economic forecasting is going to be going in the next five to 10 years? And what are some of those big ideas that you and your team are exploring? Well, I think it's going to get more granular. I think we want to be able to understand not just how the economy is performing at the highest level. We want to develop more of our provincial and then get down into much more detailed geographic regions on why do certain communities grow and other ones don't. What are the elements within their control? Can't change where a city may be. Life doesn't stand still. Technologies change. Some geographic areas will start to prosper more than others for various reasons. Some of these things are outside the control of municipal governments or decision makers, but others may be quite within their power to affect. These are kind of the ways that I'd like to see our work develop. That's where we're going to get more insight into what's actually going on. The other thing that we need to do a much better job of in forecasting is not just look at the slope of the curve. Because really what that really means is that we're just looking at things that on average or in general. So I think we can do a much better job of determining how things are affecting people differently. Here's an example of the latest questions we've got. There's a measure in the economy called the savings rate. And really what that is, is the difference between what people earn and what they've spent. Canada has a very strong savings rate right now. A lot of that was dependent on very robust recovery from the pandemic, but there was an, an awful lot of government stimulation, incentives and income supports. We also have much higher interest rates than we did. They're, they're roughly 4% higher than they were a year ago at this time. Uh, suddenly, an awful lot of people are struggling to pay their mortgages. An awful lot of mortgages are now considerably you know, underwater. How can those series, the savings and the spending concerns, be happening at the same time? Well, it turns out there's probably two different groups of people involved here. We know from basic data that 
only about half of families or households have mortgages. The other half are highly mortgaged or you know, significantly mortgaged enough where things like interest rates would really affect them negatively. Whereas there's a whole swath of the population, perhaps the higher income population, the older population that may have a lot of equity in their homes, maybe they've paid off their debts entirely. They're the ones with the savings. We've got two different groups of people. One group is hurting a lot, but the other group is actually benefiting from higher interest rates because they're earning them on their investments. We have to be able to tease out or be able to measure better the implications of different groups within the same society and the economy and how things are affecting them. Ted, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for taking the time to peel back the layers a little bit on not only our model and the way that you think about it, but your perspectives on where our economy is and where we need to focus. Appreciate you taking the time. It's my pleasure, Michael. It's not often we get to talk about the meaning of the numbers as opposed to just the numbers themselves. Economics Matters is a Conference Board of Canada podcast. You can check out more economic outlooks and analysis at conferenceboard.ca. If you like what you hear, leave us a comment or rating on Apple Podcasts. Let us know how we're doing.